0: The American POTUS podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the six presidents who each played a part in the build-up to civil war. Tensions had been getting worse for years. As the nation expanded, the fight over slavery in the new states caused this growing issue to flare up into a full-blown inferno. There was no turning back, and it was up to each president to see what they could do. They each tried to make peace and avert hostility, but in reality, they just kicked the problem down to the next guy six different presidents, one disastrous issue that resulted in civil war. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Best-selling author Chris Rose is joining us to talk about this often overlooked but critically important period in American history. He's an accomplished lawyer who specializes in constitutional law, but his real passion just might be the early history of our country. In addition to writing several terrific books, he also finds time to serve on the Board of Directors for the Abraham Lincoln Association and Board of Scholarly Advisors for President Lincoln's Cottage in Washington, D.C. Chris, thanks for taking the time to join us here on American POTUS. Thanks for having me.
1: Chris, thanks so much for joining us. And I really enjoyed The President's War. You you begin that book by recounting the famous 1830 dinner honoring Jefferson's birthday and the toast given by Andrew Jackson, John C. Calhoun, and Martin Van Buren. What did those toasts tell us about the nation at that time?
2: You know, there are moments in writing nonfiction where you come across a story and you instantly know that you're going to use it in your book and exactly where you're going to place it. We don't have the luxury of making up uh, scenes and dialogue like novelists do. but Every so often, history will surprise us with a story that is uh, too remarkable to make up. And so I'm writing this book about these five former presidents who lived to see the American Civil War, and this antebellum era that they dominated, where they uh, tried to stop the war, where they brought the war about. And you have this dinner at the at the very outset uh, of our, our serious sectional troubles of that era. And you have these three larger-than-life figures who will articulate the three principal viewpoints that clash and compete in this antebellum era. And so you have Andrew Jackson, President of the United States. The toast he gives at this dinner is that the union must be preserved. That's his viewpoint. The union is paramount. It's going to stay together. And then you've got John C. Calhoun, South Carolina, the leading exponent of nullification, states' rights, the idea that states could nullify federal laws with which they disagreed or found to be unconstitutional. He says, the union next to our liberty, most dear, right? Next to the South's peculiar version of liberty, the union is is most dear, but the union isn't paramount, right? Above that is, is, is states' rights, the institution of slavery. Uh, Martin Van Buren, um, fantastic politician, a conciliator, takes the middle ground reminds everyone in the room that America, the Constitution, it's a a series of compromises right that got us to the Constitution, that has kept the country together in 1820, and that will continue to keep the country together, that spirit of compromise, conciliation, meeting each other halfway. So you just have these three viewpoints perfectly articulated at that dinner. And once I read that, I knew there was no other way to start the book
1: almost from your perspective, too good to be true. It seems like that sets the the stage perfectly for your work.
2: It really did. Nonfiction will surprise you that way.
1: <laughs> you know, I was reminded when you were talking about Jackson's focus on the union, as you know, Lincoln had the portrait of Jackson up in part, you know, Lincoln was a Whig than a Republican, certainly not a Jacksonian Democrat, but respected Jackson's focus on the preeminence of the union. It's
2: ironic, isn't it? That Lincoln yeah. is a member of two political parties but always in opposition to... to J- well, Lincoln enters politics mm-hmm. as an opponent of Andrew Jackson and his policies, so directly uh, opposed to Andrew Jackson and never is a member of Jackson's party. But really, uh, Jackson's view, as articulated in that dinner, is what Lincoln uh, adopts. Uh, yeah. Lincoln says so explicitly mm-hmm. that um, he's, he's following Jackson's path in preserving the union above all other considerations. Mm
1: -hmm. Martin Van Buren was, of course, an acolyte of Andrew Jackson, followed his mentor into the White House. How did Van Buren view the growing tensions in the nation? And how did, after his one term, he try to regain the White House?
2: Yeah, so Van Buren is mostly focused on dealing with a financial crisis during his Mm -hmm. single term in office. Stop me if you've heard this one before, <laughs> but Andrew Jackson uh, and his uh, move to uh, break the back of the national bank um, and and hyperinflate uh, the currency allowed for um, cheap speculation in land and overheated the housing market, causing our first uh, great national collapse as a country. Fortunately, we learned from this era and never ever repeated that mistake again. <laughs> right. Um, so, so Van Buren's really focused on this financial crisis more more than anything else. Uh, Van Buren will return to presidential politics never as the holder of that office, but interestingly, uh, as as a third party candidate uh, for the Free Soil Party, unalterably opposed to slavery. And if you think about uh, Van Buren as sort of the ultimate political figure and I don't mean that pejoratively he was a politician mm-hmm. politicians uh, are interested in addition not subtraction they look to build winning coalitions van buren really uh, the founder of the democratic party this alliance mm-hmm. uh, between uh, northerners and southerners around a, a set of principles and so it's so interesting that this this really flexible politician will come back into presidential politics uh, with uh, the most um the most principled of all positions that you could have in this antebellum era, the abolition of slavery.
1: Yeah. He also had a very interesting dinner, you recount, in 1842 with a young Illinoisan. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely
2: incredible <sighs> story. He, uh, Van Buren is on the comeback trail. He is uh, taking another shot at the presidency and he is traveling the country trying to whip up support for a return to the White House. And his. Uh, carriage becomes stuck in, in central Illinois, and he's going to have to spend the night in a small town. And the people are really concerned that they, they might not provide uh, memorable entertainment for their distinguished mm-hmm. guests, certainly the most uh, distinguished guest who had passed through that way in some time, maybe ever. And so even though his hosts were Democrats, they sent for Abraham Lincoln come have dinner with them because he was the best storyteller, the best <laughs> guest to have at your dinner table. And uh, reportedly, Martin Van Buren side split with laughter <laughs> at Old Abe's stories. And it's interesting that um, years later, when Abraham Lincoln uh, gains national fame, Martin Van Buren will remember that dinner. He says, you know, I thought of that guy often over the years, and I wondered what happened mm-hmm. to him amazing and yeah really an incredible story the first time abraham lincoln ever met a president i think really formative a really formative event for abraham lincoln because when he sits across from a president and tests wits with a, a major political figure who knew the founding fathers yeah. who rose to the presidency and realizes hey this guy is uh, smart and he's you know intelligent and he's personable But no more so than me, Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln realizes that, hey, you know, maybe I can be president too, really starts to see his dream there crystallizing in a tangible way. Wow,
1: absolutely fascinating. And we know after him, we have John Tyler, who's always been a mystery to me. And again, you found a really great quote from Tyler when he was serving in the Senate about his loyalty to state versus the nation. Can you tell us about that statement and what it told you about Tyler and his role in the buildup to Civil War.
2: Certainly. So Tyler saw himself almost like the representative of Virginia to something like the United Nations. Hmm. He didn't think of the United States as a cohesive country. He thought about the federal government sort of as a meeting place and debating society for uh, representatives of these states. And so he saw himself as a Virginian first, an American second, and so his actions in the run up to and during the civil war are not surprising to anyone who understands Tyler through this lens. When he was in the Senate, he saw himself as the representative of Virginia and uh, not necessarily looking out for the national interest. Indeed, I'm not sure if he thought there was a national interest, uh, but looking out for for Virginia's uh, perspectives.
1: I wonder how we'd think that even after he became president. Uh, you know, he, it's always been a mystery to me that he accepted election to the Confederate Congress later in his life, but I understand what you're saying when he was Senator, but surely he saw the national interest when he served as president.
2: You know, I'm, I'm not certain if he did beyond yeah. some narrow issues of, you know, in mm-hmm. the constitution, you know, he was adamantly opposed to reauthorizing the national bank. He vetoed that a number of times, ended up getting kicked out of his own political party. Yeah. We can't even imagine today, right? A president being expelled mm. from their own political party. Mm. Um, but uh but he was. And so, you know, and and increasing trade, he opens up trade with China, for instance, which of course is going to be incredibly relevant in the years that followed. Mm-hmm. Um so so and acquiring, you know, Texas. I mean Polk rightfully gets almost all of the credit for it, but Tyler plays a pivotal role in uh in Texas entering the union, mm-hmm. um, which is which is overlooked. But I think I think beyond those things. Uh, you know Tyler really doesn't see a, a cohesive national interest. He sees a collection of different states that have some mm-hmm. some limited overlapping interests, but not necessarily one one cohesive interest.
1: One of the amazing things about John Tyler is that I believe he married again late in life, and his kids did the same. I was in Washington in two thousand eighteen at a presidential sites conference, and attending that conference was a grandson of John Tyler. That is truly amazing to think that Mr. Tyler lived so long ago, and his grandson was was with us in 2008. I'm not sure if he's still, still with us, but it was pretty amazing to see a little bit of history right there.
2: Yeah, he has one grandson, I believe, still living, but until so, quite recently, he had two.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Remarkable, you know, as my <laughs> friend Danny Mazza put it. He said, you know, my grandfather worked for the streets department of Hackensack, New Jersey. What did your grandparents do? (laughs) Well, he was the 10th president of the United (laughs) States, (laughs) the (laughs) 10th president of the United States, not just a recent one. Um, And, uh, you know, Tyler married a much younger woman um, after his wife died and um, had children with her. And then her children uh, kind of did the same thing. They they married much younger women later in life, had children until they were quite old, and that's how we have um, that's how we have a living grandchild of America's tenth tenth yeah, president.
1: Amazing. I know uh, earlier in American POTUS, we had an episode featuring Robert Mary talking to us about James K. Polk, and certainly after the war with Mexico and the addition of all the new territories, the issue of slavery became even more pronounced. How did Polk think that that issue would be resolved in the aftermath of the war? Yeah, Mary's book is fantastic. Yes. Um, Polk wanted to just
2: draw the Missouri Compromise line to the Pacific, which was a reasonable enough proposition. Uh, The Missouri Compromise line, set in 1820, had kept the country together, settled uh, these outstanding controversies that threatened to tear it apart. Now, all of a sudden, uh, America has millions of new acres, including uh, where I am now speaking to you from Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. We are now a bi-coastal country. And Polk just looks at the map and says, let's just extend the Missouri Compromise Line to the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, that's that's the middle position here, and he's not
1: going to have the last word on it. Can you tell us about the famous Wilmot Proviso and how Polk viewed that?
2: The Wilmot Proviso isn't as well known today, but in the antebellum era, it was among the most incendiary issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Congressman Wilmot of Pennsylvania, certainly no abolitionist, uh, but believed that no new territory acquired by the United States uh, should ever be uh, held uh, by slavers. And so he believed he would introduce an amendment uh, every Congress. to this effect that any new territory acquired by the United States would be free territory rather than slave.
1: Well, that was like throwing fuel onto the fire for sure.
2: You would think that it wouldn't be such a controversial issue, right? Slavery is going to be allowed to continue where it already exists. In fact, the federal government has no power to reach it where it currently exists. Mm -hmm. Simply that, you know, when this, when this, um, republic, this republic dedicated to liberty, acquires new territory and grows and expands, uh, that it will not also uh, spread slavery with it. Uh, But of course, this is an incredibly controversial issue, as you say, and Mm. Abraham Lincoln, a very consistent supporter of the Wilmot Proviso during his time in office.
1: And he could certainly point back to the Northwest Territories where slavery wasn't permitted at the very beginning of the republic.
2: Absolutely. And yeah. by Lincoln's term in office, I refer to his term as a, a member of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, well, mm-hmm. well-focused president. Always the right. Proviso.
1: You make a really interesting point about the possible ramifications of the death of President Zachary Taylor. How do you think he would have handled the growing sectional tensions if he had not passed away pretty early on in office?
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the great what-ifs of American history. So you have Zachary Taylor who is nominated, uh, not for any particular reason other than that he is the most popular person in America. Uh, he, he, is, uh, he said he was nominally a Whig, member of the Whig party, really hadn't voted, hadn't been active in politics. His beliefs really weren't well known. Uh, but Abraham Lincoln, as one of the first seven congressional uh, endorsers of Taylor's pr- uh, candidacy, said, uh, we've tried losing long enough, let's try winning. (laughs) And so uh, you know they figured he would be better than Louis Cass, the um, Democratic nominee for president. So they got behind Taylor. Mm -hmm. Taylor, interestingly, faces most of his opposition for the Whig nomination from uh, abolitionists, people who are opposed to slavery, people who are supporters of the Wilmot Proviso. However, when Taylor gets into office, he proves uh, to be a greater president beyond the wildest uh, imagination uh, mm. of uh, abolitionists and supporters of the Wilmot Proviso. He invites California to come in as a free state mm. with no offsets for slave states. And, uh, and when Southern states start agitating about this, uh, he makes no bones about what his response will be. It'll be, a mili- it'll be a military response. He'll probably be the first president since George Washington uh, to lead the army into battle. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he, he's not going to countenance any sort of rebellion over uh, the decisions of the government. Mm -hmm. And Taylor is the most popular man in America. He's the most popular man among the army, which I think is also very important. He is a prodigious slaveholder himself. He's a Southerner. He's born in Virginia. Uh, and he's a prodigious slaveholder himself. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you have this breaking point, right, uh, In his term of office, I think any sort of rebellion would have been much smaller in scope and easily put down. And I think that would have set a precedent, right? And so I think America may never have had a civil war if Taylor had lived and seen off the secession crisis that was broiling uh, when he died.
1: Chris, what can you tell us about Millard Fillmore's background? And why do you say that the Whig Fillmore? perhaps the most jacksonian of presidents
2: yeah so millard fillmore today you know his his name is almost like a punchline but (laughs) he really was a a great man and a very successful president first of all uh, a truly american story um literally born in a a, a log cabin very humble beginnings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. taught himself to read using a dictionary uh, in between uh, working a machine at a factory And became a really prominent lawyer, sought after lawyer, uh, a prominent member of the New York legislature, uh, a congressman and a very successful congressman. He chaired the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, He rewrote the tariff. He instituted procedures that are still used in the House of Representatives this day for auditing federal departments. Mm. Uh, So really a brilliant man, a great mind, a self-made man. And he becomes president of the United States when Taylor dies. But he doesn't have the same uh, room to operate that Taylor would have. Taylor was the one who won the election. He was the most popular man in America. He was the war hero that emerged from the conflict with Mexico. And so uh, Fillmore doesn't have the same uh, sort of uh, popularity to draw from. And so what Fillmore decides he's going to do is he's going to sign uh, the Compromises of 1850. We call it the Compromise of 1850, and I think that's just wrong. It's not. It's a series of yeah. bills, It's not one compromise. And so what you had was a, a, a middle group of border state members of Congress who voted for every bill. And then you had the extremes uh, on both sides vote for or against the measure, whether or not it, it benefited or burdened the North or the South. And so, for instance, the fugitive slave uh, law which became the most controversial aspect of the Compromises of 1850. Obviously, the Southern representatives voted for that, along with the border state uh, members, uh, and and members from the North voted against it. Um, Also, bringing in California as a free state, Northern states voting for it, Southern states voting against it border state uh, senators and congressmen holding the ground in the middle. And so Fillmore announces that he will sign all of the measures of the compromises of 1850, whereas uh, Taylor had promised to veto them. Uh That allows for them to pass, because Henry Clay cannot put them together in a single bill. You can't get enough votes for them in a single bill, but as separate provisions, they could. And so uh, really, Fillmore Knows this, he's signing his political death warrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, really destroys the Whig Party in the North by signing the Fugitive Slave Law. But what Fillmore accomplishes here is to postpone the Civil War by ten years. Mm-hmm. And really, if not for the follies of the 1850s that follow, uh, it could have been a durable peace. You know, it, yeah. it is always uh, it's tempting fate to call something a lasting solution in American mm-hmm. history. Um, and indeed, it, it did not last very long, but um, it, it, it lasted long enough for the North to gain population and industrial capacity yeah. that it needed to win the Civil War.
1: Now, let, let's turn to Franklin Pierce. He backed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which we know, with uh, looking back, was one of the final steps toward Civil War. Why did Pierce support such explosive legislation, and how did he believe the crisis would be resolved short of fighting?
2: yeah Pierce is inscrutable. He is from New Hampshire. He's lived in New Hampshire his whole life. He's descended from a long line of distinguished uh, New Hampshireites. For whatever reason, he just cannot get his head around why anyone would care about slavery.
1: Huh.
2: He just has uh, no no feelings uh or empathy certainly toward the enslaved, but also just no ability you know and for such a natural politician right Pierce holds a series of offices as the youngest fill in the blank, the youngest Speaker of the House in New Hampshire, youngest Congressman, youngest Senator, youngest President on the day he takes the oath of office. Mm. Um, But so for such a natural politician, he just has no ability to uh, understand the viewpoint of abolitionists or people who wish to slow the spread of slavery. And so to him, you know, why why would why would we prevent Americans from bringing their property into this new territory? And so, he throws all of his weight into uh, passage of the Kansas Nebraska Act. After which point, we are on a, a glide path to civil war. Mm-hmm. Even then, though, if popular sovereignty, Stephen Douglas's position, if if so- popular sovereignty had been allowed to work its will, right, where you let residents of a territory choose. To be free or slave. If, if that had been allowed to work, Kansas would have easily become a free state. It was settled by people from the North. It was settled uh, by, by poor white people who didn't want to compete with free labor. And so there would have been no, no trouble in that election uh, securing a majority for, the, for, for a free Kansas. The problem is that Pierce allows the most violent and over-the-top and unsubtle voter fraud and voter intimidation to take place in those Kansas elections, one after another, after another, after another. And so Kansas uh, becomes a slave territory by virtue of flagrantly stolen elections through violence and fraud. And so Pierce permitting this to happen uh, really makes the civil war inevitable.
1: So let's turn now to James Buchanan. We spoke recently with Robert Strauss, You called him the worst president ever in his biography. Why was Buchanan so ineffectual in dealing with secession? And how did he then and later try to justify his actions or lack thereof? Yeah,
2: Buchanan certainly deserves his place among the worst presidents. Mm -hmm. He's obviously not the worst president in history. I would put Pierce below him for advocating for and signing the Kansas Nebraska Act Mm -hmm. and also for allowing unchecked. Uh, unchecked election fraud in Kansas Mm -hmm. Um, I would put Johnson at the bottom of the list for the failure of reconstruction there is simply Mm -hmm. no policy failure in American history with more dire consequences for more millions of Americans for the country as a whole we live with its effects every day and of course so many millions of Americans lived um, sadder smaller uh, more tragic lives because of the failure of reconstruction and so Johnson must always be considered the worst president Buchanan deserves to be close to the bottom of the list but not for the same reasons that most people think most people would rate him at the bottom of the list because of how he acted in the secession crisis yeah and actually his conduct during the secession crisis he handled it tolerably well it was a completely unique situation nobody who had held that office before him had confronted Uh, So serious uh, a secession crisis where you had uh, multiple states uh, declaring their intention to leave the country at once. He had maybe 18,000 troops under his command. Perhaps two thirds of those were west of the Mississippi. So even if he had had the entire U.S. Army in one place, and even if they had all been willing to invade a state, and that certainly would not have been the case, right? I believe about a third of the Army's officers resigned during the Civil War, rather than than, than make war against uh, their home region or make war against the South. But even if he had had 18,000 army troops ready, willing, and able to invade South Carolina, that would have been insufficient to defeat South Carolina. And South Carolina would have been aided by other southern states. And in fact, it would have cost us the border states, which Abraham Lincoln pointed out, is losing them is the same as losing the whole game. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, The American Civil War is successful for the Union because of their ability to maintain so many border states and so many slave states rather than losing them to the Confederacy. And so, you know, you could say, well, Buchanan should have fired the secessionists in his cabinet. Okay, but what kind of message are you sending to the border states and to the states that claim to have seceded that you're now trying to negotiate with to get them back in the Union? Remember, America had walked up to the precipice before and always successfully compromised its way back, right? Mm -hmm. From the very beginning, from the Constitutional Convention, uh, America has been a series of compromises. Uh, You go to the Compromise of 1820, the Compromises of 1850. America had always found a way out of the the problems that it had. It Mm -hmm. uh, had walked up to the precipice before of disunion, of breaking up, And it had never happened. So Buchanan, of course, thinks we're going to be able to find a negotiated solution to this. And that was because America always had. America had a genius for compromising. Uh, So this happened to be the one case where where that wasn't true. And so, you know, what more do you want Buchanan to do, I guess? Uh, He, you know, tries to reinforce Fort Sumter. He's unsuccessful. He um, passes Washington, D.C. to Abraham Lincoln. Secure. He brings in a number of troops into the city under the guise of uh, having them in the inaugural parades, Um, but he brings in uh, uh, troops and secures the city and passes it secure on to Abraham Lincoln. And so, uh, I think his record in the secession crisis is a mixed one, right? But it's not the catastrophic failure uh, that it's um, that it's portrayed as by his critics. His critics really don't understand the hand that he was playing.
1: Well, it's certainly good to have that perspective. Typically, as you know, he's, he's uh, denounced for his role in that. So I think that's a really good antidote to, uh, to some of those analyses for sure. And you mentioned Lincoln. I know you've written uh, very eloquently on his time in the Congress. And what is he doing at this time after he leaves Congress? And what brings him back into the, the world of politics?
2: Certainly. Well, Lincoln fails to secure a position in the Taylor administration. Um, and goes back to practicing law. And he thought he was finished with politics for good, or at least he he said so. And uh, what brought him back into politics, aroused as never before, as he put it, uh, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, the spread of slavery into the territories. And he really found an issue that had animated him like no other issue had before. And so he will reenter politics as an opponent of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and will seek uh, a position in the u.s senate from the illinois legislature he's unsuccessful both times but the second time brings him to national attention uh, because of his debates with stephen douglas who of course by then is already not just a national celebrity but a person whose name is known around the world Mm -hmm. um and a prominent senator author of the kansas nebraska act a leading democrat uh for the presidency and um through his debates with Douglas, his discussions with Douglas of these major issues, the genius of Abraham Lincoln is revealed to the country for the first time. And uh, he becomes a national figure in his own right as a consequence.
1: We know as Lincoln comes into office, the nation is falling apart. We're just dazed from war. We spoke earlier about John Tyler and his election to the Confederate Congress. Talk to us about what Franklin Pierce and Millard Fillmore did. During the war, especially with Pierce, I know he came under great criticism for his actions during the war itself.
2: Yeah, Pierce, who just can't get his mind around why anyone would be opposed to slavery, makes the argument that if the South and can, if the South wants to leave on its own, it should be permitted to do so. Hmm. That's his position. Let the seceding states go. If you can't persuade them to stay, uh, let them go. Let the United States come to an end. And let you know let there be peace between these two these two new countries that were previously won, and he will spend the war years campaigning for peace Democrats, campaigning for Democrats who are opposed to Lincoln's war policy he will uh, spend the war years giving public speeches, uh, condemning the war effort, condemning Lincoln, and uh promoting a, a negotiated peace um in many ways, I consider his role more insidious than Tyler's because Tyler is is never anything more than what he claims to be. Right? He's a Virginian. He's a Virginian first. That was all he ever said he was. And uh, when there's a war, he's you know he throws in with Virginia. He's also a Southerner. He's a uh, slaveholder. Franklin Pierce is from New Hampshire. I really don't understand what his excuse was for being such a uh, proponent uh, of the slave interest Mm -hmm. and uh, slave states and their conduct, even their willingness to destroy the country over slavery. And so um, Franklin Pierce, of course, will be thoroughly discredited as a result uh, of his opposition uh, to the ultimately successful uh, war effort by the Union. Uh, Fillmore carves out a really interesting role for himself. First of all, he raises a National Guard unit. Uh, you, You can see there's a picture in my book uh, Fillmore in uniform, and you can see he's, he's not in much shape for fighting. <laughs> uh, so he, he creates a National Guard unit in Buffalo. When we think about Buffalo, what do you mean in Buffalo? But uh, Canada, of course, is a British possession at this point. Britain comes perilously close to entering the war against the United States. In fact, Fillmore will write a five-page letter to Abraham Lincoln explaining to him how he thinks he can navigate around uh, Britain's possible entry into the war. Uh, So Buffalo goes from being a very distant theater of the Civil War, but it actually could have been the front lines Mm -hmm. if uh, Britain had entered the war and um, an invasion had come from Canada. And so he raises a National Guard unit. He also becomes uh, the head of a major philanthropy that's designed to care for the widows and orphans of the Civil War Mm -hmm. and uh, renders a really incredible service. It was the biggest charitable effort in American history uh, uh, up to that point. And, uh, of course, Fillmore will, will part ways with Lincoln over the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, he believes uh, correctly that it will extend the war, that uh, uh, enlarging the objectives of the war from union to union and the end of slavery will you know, force the, the South to fight longer and harder. Uh, he's correct about that. Um, He also feels that Lincoln, you know, had no uh, authority, no constitutional authority to act as he did. Uh, And of course, you know, his beliefs will will not stand the test of time.
1: As president, what made him different from these other men we've been discussing today? And how did he change the institution of the presidency?
2: Yeah, well, he was the first president since Andrew Jackson to really draw a line, right? And say, Mm -hmm. beyond this line, there will be no compromise. And Lincoln ran for president as the nominee of a party that was committed to keeping slavery out of the territories, preventing the spread of slavery throughout the United States. And that was what he ran on, that was what he won on. And so that was something he didn't feel he could compromise on, even if he had been inclined to, and he was not. And so uh, whereas his predecessors really served almost as managers, right? They tried to manage this tempest that managed these uh, sectional tensions in the United States. Lincoln was really more of a leader than a manager. He he campaigned on principle, he won on principle, and he governed on principle. And he wasn't going to let himself get intimidated uh, by a group of secessionists into abandoning that principle.
0: You know, before we get to our final segment, I know our audience wants to know. So according to the internet, and of course you have to (laughs) believe it, Yes. As of May 2021, Harrison Ruffin Tyler is still alive.
1: Yes. <laughs> you guys
2: have him on the show.
1: Uh, oh, that would be. Thank you for that idea, Chris. That's I think perfect. we
2: should. Uh, Somebody use uh, Zencaster. His, his first
1: name is Harrison. I wonder if that's over uh, from William Henry Harrison.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or Harrison. yeah there you go. Yeah. All right, listen, we've talked a lot about these six men and their role in the lead-up to the Civil War. Now, let's get to know them a bit more from the personal side. So of these presidents, the ones we've been talking about, Tyler, Van Buren, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, and Lincoln, who was the smartest, Chris?
2: I think Lincoln is undoubtedly the smartest. You think about a guy with almost no formal education who taught himself— Geometry by sketching in coal on the back of a shovel and Jeez. borrowed and read every book on the frontier, and you know the only president to have a patent, a brilliant lawyer for some of the most uh important corporations in the United States, just just a brilliant attorney who would be remembered well as an attorney in Illinois if he had never become president mm-hmm. um, you know really, truly traveled the farthest distance. From his birth to the White House, right? Yeah. From his station in life, where he started, where he finished. So I think Lincoln is just in a class of his own among the presidents in terms of yeah. brilliance.
0: And as you mentioned, he's the he's the best storyteller, too, of the group, probably.
2: Yeah, the funniest, uh, mm-hmm. certainly the best company, the person you'd most want to have for dinner.
0: All right. Of these six presidents, who was the cleverest, politically speaking, the cleverest? It's,
2: it's interesting. You know, we tend to associate... Being a skilled politician, with uh, um, with with it's a negative association, right? This He's a good politician. It's a negative association. It sounds like a backhanded compliment. <laughs> but really, if you're involved in statecraft, if you're in politics to affect change, then you have to be adept at the skills of politics. It yeah. really stands yeah. for reason. And so Lincoln is also the best politician of the group, right? He accomplishes his objectives. Um Always has a very good read for public opinion, how far ahead of it he can get, how, how much of it he has to follow, how much of it he can lead and shape and change. And so uh, nobody, I think, had a better feel for politics, for campaigns, for the mood of the public uh, than Lincoln. But I think an honorable mention has to go to Martin Van Buren, mm-hmm. who really forms the modern Democratic the modern for well, what is now the modern Democratic Party, mm-hmm. Van Buren really is the architect, right? He figures out, okay, you know, he's counting votes. He's looking for a broad uh, coalition. He really builds the coalition that wins the White House more often than not in the Annabelle era and holds the Congress more often than not throughout the Annabelle era. You know, Van Buren, a very, very talented politician in his own right.
0: Yeah. All right. Who was the most? Let's see if Lincoln gets, the, you know, the third one here, too. Yeah. Who <laughs> who was the most stubborn it's such an interesting
2: question i mean obviously uh, lincoln uh, lincoln could compromise with the best of them but he certainly had a line beyond which he wasn't willing to go and so i wonder you know actually i would think tyler is the most stubborn tyler uh, tyler was the one who said if lincoln wins the white house you know then then we've got to go especially if they're not willing to allow slavery in the territories. So I think that's a pretty stubborn position to have. Yeah. yeah. Um but I think you know you don't get to be president without being a little bit stubborn. Mm-hmm. And um you don't come up short in your objectives as president without being a little bit stubborn. And um and, and many of these men did. And so it's it's an interesting characteristic and I think it was shared by
0: by a number of these guys. Yeah, great point. Who was the biggest bully of these six presidents?
2: That's such a good question. I wonder, what do you mean by bully?
0: Who would do anything to get their point across? Oh,
2: what an interesting
0: question. Anything. Who
2: would do anything? (laughs) To get their point across. Boy, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think of of any of these men as truly being bullies, right? They're mostly genteel, described as genteel and collegial in their personal interactions. They're well-liked. I guess it's hard, especially in the convention era where everyone who nominated you for president knew you, it was probably really hard to get ahead being a jerk to people. You needed a supermajority to be nominated as a Democrat. So you really had to be personally well-liked.
0: Well, on that note, here's the next one and the last one. Who was the nicest guy? Just caught in the wrong situation at the wrong time.
2: Boy, that's interesting. Uh, I think Lincoln probably was the nicest mm-hmm. of them in terms of, um, you know, just think about the descriptions of the people who knew these men. And Lincoln consistently described as someone who would uh, give you the shirt off his back, would yeah. go out of his way to, to render a kindness to you. Someone who had a, a real conscience for how he treated and interacted with mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe uh, biographies of other people biographers of other presidents would, would, would feel this way, that every every nice euphemism applied to their guy. But I, I certainly think I've answered these questions honestly. You know, that's yeah. what yeah. Lincoln would want me to do. You didn't yeah. ask, I and mean, then he's also the most honest, right?
0: Yeah, yeah um, of, course. of course. Absolutely. And Chris, finally, in just one sentence, a little unfair, but can you summarize these six men and the impact they had on the coming civil war?
2: Certainly. So you had six men who became president of the United States in different ways and at different times, all of whom in their own way tried to stop the war. The five who preceded Lincoln in their own ways brought it about and caused it to happen. And so while their uh, solutions didn't stand the test of time, Abraham Lincoln's leadership uh, put an end not only to the war and saved the Union. Uh, but destroyed the institution of slavery uh, that had been the, the greatest threat to American unity
1: to that point. Just a wonderful conversation, okay. Chris. Thank, thank you so much. What is next for you? So I uh, wrote a book
2: that came out in November about an armed rebellion led by World War II veterans against a corrupt political machine. It's called The Fighting Bunch. Yes. Hmm. And uh would love to, um, you know, I guess – It's not presidential history, so I can't come back on and talk about it.
1: But it it is a terrific read, I will say that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. I hope you'll come back again on American POTUS. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show and the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Chris DeRose for joining us on this episode about these six Civil War presidents. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode, or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Abraham Lincoln. Quote, you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today.